You know what? I, I remember the day as if it were yesterday. I just come home for Thanksgiving break. It was my first year of seminary, and I, what I remember is just being glad. You know, you're you're back finally with your family and your friends. And um, my mom's parents, my grandma, and grandpa were visiting. Uh, the Thanksgiving table, well, always a smorgasbord of turkey, mashed potatoes, and dressing and gravy. And as I'm taping this, uh, of course, we're getting close to Thanksgiving, so I'm, I'm picturing that table. And always, I, I think you'll agree with this, way more desserts than a person should eat, like in an entire year. So we're all set to eat, and the request comes from my dad. Luke, this is your first year home from seminary. Why don't you do the honors? Nope, the honors were not cutting the turkey. The honors were, why don't you say the Thanksgiving prayer? And my dad always did that. And now here I am, a seminarian expected to pray. I mean, in a moment, I was in a panic. So what should, what should I do? Should I speak like eloquent sounding words over this turkey? Should should I, are, are people expecting me after all I'm in seminary to sound theological or pastoral? Do I take this occasion to pontificate before God or do I just keep it simple? I really, I really wasn't prepared. I wasn't sure. So what did I do? I opened up my mouth and out came the words, come Lord Jesus, be our guest and let these gifts to us be blessed. Amen. Words that I learned as a child. So I got a question for you today. How did you learn how to pray? Chances are good if you're like many Christians that you really, you did not, not really. Instead, you just started doing it. Maybe you did it with your parents or a parent before you went to sleep. I fondly remember the words that we would say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, or maybe you did it before mealtimes. No doubt there was some point in your life where you learned something like the Lord's Prayer. Prayer wasn't a class that you took. It didn't grow out of a talk that your parents gave to you. It, it was something much simpler, something more natural, something organic. It was sort of like breathing, almost autonomic. You didn't have to study it or think deeply about it. Prayer is something you just did until you didn't. Which is, is why if I were writing a book on prayer today, I think the title of my book would be not learning to pray, but rather unlearning to pray. So my theory is pretty simple. I've come to believe that each one of us is actually, as we come into faith, reborn to live out what St. Paul encourages when he says, pray without ceasing. The reference is 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And what Paul's doing through this word is he's equating prayer with air. As much as none of us have to be taught to breathe life-giving oxygen. We do it automatically in response to our built-in biology. So, so does prayer become an automatic part of who we are through, through conversion? So I want you to think about this. When we're brought into the faith, we're brought into a relationship with someone. Faith's not about a relationship with something. It's not a set of, of theological dogma or logical principles. It's about a relationship with a very real person, the person of Jesus. And guess what? 
Relationships require conversation. So we converse, we pray, we talk to God, we listen, we seek to hear God's response. Prayer is air. It's the breath of our relationship with Jesus until that is the more learned get their hands on it. So again, I'm going to ask you another question. Do you remember the first time that you questioned your ability to pray? Maybe it's when somebody began with good intentions to teach you a model for prayer. Excuse me. When you pray, you need to do it like this. And they enumerated some theological model. And you listened and you thought to yourself, huh, you know what? I wonder if I've been doing this wrong. Maybe my prayers, maybe they do. Maybe they need to have this, this format. Or maybe you begin to question your prayer life as you listen to another Christian praying with unbridled eloquence. You heard someone pray that kind of prayer that ought to be written in a book and published. It was a beautiful prayer and it caused you to stop and to think to yourself, you know what? My prayers don't sound like that. Instead of, instead of soaring like a plane, mine kind of fall out of a broken cannon. Thump. They just plop out. Or maybe it was a book someone handed you. The Prayer of Jabez. <laughs> and I won't forget that book. Somebody says, this is how prayer ought to be done. And you, you read the book and you thought to yourself, wow, you know, my, my prayers really, they're not like that. And so gradually, almost imperceptibly, you simply stop really praying. Which again is why if I had to write a book on prayer, I, I wouldn't title it Learning to Pray. I would title it Unlearning to Pray. My thought goes something like this. Maybe what is needed when it comes to prayer is not another book or class or model, but a return to what's been inside of us all along. Namely, a desire to just talk to the one that we walk with through the day, who we share life with, who when things get hard, we confide in and trust in and just love being with. Maybe what's needed when it comes to prayer is a good dose of unlearning, which is why I'm, I'm really am. I'm glad you're joining me today for this edition of God-Sized Living. And over the last several weeks, we've been exploring a question that I've encountered with some degree of frequency over the course of ministry. The question, does prayer really change anything? And if you've been following, you know that what led us here is a prayer that we find Daniel praying on behalf of Israel. You find the prayer at the end of chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. Remember, this prayer takes us to a place where we meet Daniel towards the end of his life. He's served God faithfully for over six decades, even as he sees his own end coming. Prior to leaving this earth, Daniel lifts up this prayer in a time of change. The almost 70 years during which Israel has been in exile are coming to an end. God has raised up a nation, Persia, that would set the captive Israelites free from their slavery in Babylon. God would allow them to return to the beautiful land, Jerusalem, where both the temple and the city must be restored. It's a good time in Israel's history, a time of hope and promise. It's also a time when old man Daniel, life's time a thing or two, knows just how easy it would be for Israel, even as it returns home, to fall back into the patterns of life that caused them to fall away from God in the first place. And so Daniel prays. I got to tell you, I was reminded of this this past week. I was speaking to an individual who 
has a, a member of their family, a, a young member of their family who attempted suicide this past week for the third time. Each time the individual has received help, they've survived the suicide and they've learned some things about themselves. They've vowed never to go back to that dark place yet the pull is too great. And I think Daniel knows that even as Israel returns to its home, as the temple is rebuilt along with the city of Jerusalem, the pull will be great to return to that place where faith becomes diminished, where life is good, where, where people no longer depend upon God alone. And so Daniel knows, no, it's time to pray. So how does he pray? I want to make two points here. First, he praises one for whom prayer is simply breath. Prayer for Daniel is air. Here's what we know about Daniel. When you look at this book, you could not stop him from praying. Those who hated him had tried. Remember, they actually created a law that would prevent people from praying. Daniel, he stepped out and prayed anyway. He wouldn't stop. Why? Because just as much as it would be impossible to find life without breath, for Daniel, prayer was a way of life. It was not something he learned in a book. It wasn't something that followed a model. It wasn't something that he had to follow some particular formula. It was just talking to someone who Daniel lived life with, namely God. Second thing I, I want to I just point out is when Daniel prays, I think it's important to notice that he always prays from a posture of release. And over the last several weeks, we've discovered something about prayer. We've discovered that prayer is something that changes things, but the something that has changed when we pray is not God or God's mind or necessarily the individuals or circumstances about which we're praying. No, what, what prayer changes is us. Prayer, we've discovered, is what God uses to bring our souls, our spirits, our wills into alignment with his. And that's what I want us to recognize here. In this prayer of Daniel, we discover a couple of petitions on the part of the prayer, Daniel. And what stands out most about them is the fact that each represents a posture of surrender or release. I want to highlight that for us today. I want us to notice how the posture of Daniel is one of release, a posture that opens us up to the change that God is seeking to make inside of us. So I want to dig in with you. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to chapter 9 in Daniel. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. Just simply follow along. I'm going to read the relevant text. And I, I want to begin with verse 16. And uh, let's, let's remember what's happening for 70 years. Again, Israel has lived in slavery in Babylon. God has now raised up the nation of Persia. Persia sweeps in and overnight captures the citadel of the nation. Now, Persia is not the only thing that God raises up. Remember that at the same time, God raises up a king. His name is Darius or Cyrus. Both are equivalent. He has both a Persian and a Median name. His parents were each Persian and Media. And soon this king, Darius Cyrus, who God raises up, will release Israel from slavery. Now, in the moment that Daniel prays this prayer, 
the king has not yet acted to set Israel free, although Daniel knows that he will. Do you remember how? How does Daniel know that God will set Israel free? Do you remember? I'll give you a clue. The answer is in the scroll. Remember with me that because of the position Daniel held during his years in Babylon, he had direct access to something few ordinary people could access, namely the king's library. And guess what was in that library? The scroll of Jeremiah. While Israel has been in slavery all of these years, God has been working to bring his word through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel in exile. Now, as Daniel reads Jeremiah's scroll, here's what he discovers. He discovers that God has informed the prophet that after 70 years, he would set his people free. Now, Daniel can add, and he does, and he realizes time's up. God is getting ready to set Israel free. Okay, so let's put this together. Daniel knows, based upon prophetic promise, that God is getting ready to set Israel free. So what does he pray for? Or let me ask it a bit differently. What would you pray for? As Daniel begins this prayer, I don't know about you, but I think we might expect his prayer to be one of thanksgiving. You know, dear Lord, you've shown your servant Daniel through the great prophet Jeremiah that you will set Israel free. And oh, so great Lord, on this day, I give you thanks. But that is not his prayer. Instead, you know what his prayer is for? It's for alignment, forgiveness. It's a prayer that asks God not only to forgive Israel for the sins that brought them into exile in the first place, but also for that work that God does within us, that work through which he changes us, making our hearts beat like his own. I want you to listen to these words. I'm going to read from chapter nine. I'm going to go to verse number 16. And Lord, we do ask your, your hand of discernment as we read these words. Give us your direction. Amen. Let's just read it. Verse 16, chapter nine reads as follows. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. I love those words. Um, I always think about Jerusalem set on the, the hill, uh, Mount Zion, it's called. And then think about how that points to another holy hill, namely Golgotha. So let's, let's pull back. Why does Daniel pray this way? If I had to put it into a word, the word I think I would use is the word relationship. This prayer begins with Daniel in essence saying, Lord, sin got us into the mess that we've now been in for 70 years. We lost relationship with you. And our desire is to return, not just to Jerusalem, not to a place, not to a temple, but Lord, to your heart. I want you to see this, that the posture of Daniel's prayer is not, Lord, change our circumstance but rather change our hearts. What I love about this is the fact that for the last several weeks, we've been saying one thing through this podcast. We've been answering the question, does prayer really change anything? And the answer is always yes. It's meant to. It's meant to change us, which is what we see in Daniel's second petition, verse 17. I love these words. Read them with me or simply listen. Verse 17, Daniel's second petition. 
reads as follows. Daniel prays, quote, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now, as you, as you hear this petition, it may, I hope it does, it may remind you of what has been called over the years the ironic blessing. You find it first in the book of Numbers. It's a benediction that was first given to Aaron and through Aaron to the priests who would serve the temple and administer worship there. Now, notice the key thought in this benediction has to do with what? Again, relationship. In fact, the way that relationship is expressed here, I believe is beautiful. Let your face shine upon. So over my years in ministry, this blessing, the ironic blessing has been one I, I've been able to use at the close of every worship service. In fact, most liturgies in the mainline church include these words as the close of worship. And here's why. They express what it means to have such a relationship with God that we're able to speak with him face to face. And as we look into his face, what do we see? Radiance. Love. A desire to serve those whose lives belong to him. And all of a sudden, we're back to posture. When we worship, what are we doing? We're engaging in an act of surrender. We're saying, God, here in this place of worship, we have laid our lives bare before you. Now, as we prepare to leave, we want to acknowledge that you know our needs better than we do ourselves. Lord, rather than ask you simply to change the circumstances of our lives or for things that we believe that we need or for conditions to change in order that we might have a fulfilled life, we're simply placing our lives into your hands. Oh, Lord, we are trusting you. Let your face shine upon us. How differently that sounds from so many of the prayers that fill up books in our world today. So I want to close this way today. We've talked a lot about prayer over the last several weeks. I hope our time in this subject has been informing. But I want to get a little bit practical today, a little bit personal. Part of the reason we do this podcast is just to provoke one another to ask questions about how we put into practice the things of the scriptures. So three questions I want to set in front of you today. And the first is this one. How would you characterize your prayer life today? In some ways, I've always said, I think that, that the way we pray really reflects the degree of closeness that we feel with God. Sometimes when we feel distant, you'll notice your prayer life begins to, to kind of disappear or, or pull back. And, and from time to time, I, I have to stop and just ask myself this question. Luke, scout of 1 to 10, where, where are you today in terms of your prayer life? Is, is it just rote things that you're rattling off? Or is there your heart? Where, where are you in your prayer walk with Jesus Christ? Can you really say, Lord, let your face shine upon me? Do you believe that? How would you characterize your prayer life today? Secondly, in what ways does your prayer life reflect a posture of release? I think unlearning to pray means we, we unlearn the idea that somehow we've got to, you know, say things the right way and be living the right way in order for God to answer these questions that we have or the needs that we're setting in front of him. When in reality, 
Prayer is just talking to God. And the posture that we take makes a huge difference. It's being able to say, I come to you today, God, not holding tightly the things I set in front of you, but really loosely and releasing them to you. Does your prayer life reflect that? And then third, and maybe the most important thing I want to leave you with is this. Are there things that you need to unlearn to pray? Maybe maybe the, the, the church world has gotten to you and you've begun to believe, I've got to pray a certain way or it's got to sound a certain way. When in reality, what God says is just let it out because the Holy Spirit translates our prayers to God anyway. And as he does, God listens and loves us. His face shines upon us. And he gives us not necessarily what we ask for, but what we need. And most of all, he is a God who uses prayer to change us. Well, that's it for today. We're going to pick up a a little bit different topic next week. Um, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, It's it's always a joy for me to, to put this together and to think about you and your families. I will be lifting you up in prayer, and I'm going to ask that you do the same for me. Uh, And until we meet again next week, have a God-sized week. Mm -hmm.